Chapter 5. Preparing to Film. Buying Equipment, Casting Noah, and Finding Locations. Start, you know, being responsible, acting like an adult. (laughs) Meanwhile, Kyle, John, and I faced a technical hurdle. Our very first video blog documents Kyle and me visiting Rule, Boston Camera, an awesome toy store of a facility in Lower Alston, where most medium to large size film productions in Boston rent and load camera equipment. There was a camera, the Blackmagic Cinema Camera, BMCC, that had been announced the previous year, and its $2,500 price point, with ability to shoot raw 2K video, made it attractive. John and Kyle bickered over the specs of the frame size, and ultimately John was right. It was small, smaller than the Canon 7D, which we shot sexually frank on, and would make shooting with wide lenses very difficult, which would be problematic in small spaces, and a number of the locations were quite cramped. Still, we thought we could make do by shooting with especially wide lenses, and Kyle was going to buy the camera anyway. But then the National Association of Broadcasters Exposition, NAB, was about to take place, and we held off, wondering if Blackmagic would release a more useful version of the same camera. To our delight, they totally did. The Blackmagic Production Camera 4K had a full-frame sensor, interchangeable battery, which the BMCC also lacked, 4K 16-bit RAW video, or ProRes 422 if you want, which is still huge, but less so than RAW, and all for $4,000. They also released the Blackmagic Pocket Camera, which shot 1080 RAW footage and an MFT lens mount. That was only $1,000. It was an intriguing set of releases. These were announced in April, with an expected release date for July. John assisted me in building a monster computer. We all assumed that the 4K production camera was what we'd shoot the movie in, and to edit that footage without converting it to lower-res proxies was going to require a serious machine, with loads of storage. $3,000 later, I had 8TB in a 12TB RAID 5 configuration with 32 gigs of RAM, Samsung SSD internal drives, a 6-core processor, a 4-gig video card, the GeForce GTX 760 for you gaming geeks, a 1,000-watt power supply, and a ridiculous heatsink to quiet the system down. I had edited our previous films on computers with a fraction of those specs, but the shooting format we expected to shoot in was a significant leap. Raw 1080p footage takes up 1 gig of disk space for every 10 seconds of video. Why shoot in such a ludicrous format? Because the guy or gal who does your color grading in post-production will love you. Still photographers typically shoot raw stills, then color correct their favorites with a great deal of latitude and color information, and then create JPEGs for general consumption. The same was true here, just 24 stills per second. If we had more time, control over our locations, budget, and crew, we could probably have gotten the look we wanted in camera, with little to no color grading in post. But for the run-and-gun style that's kept us out of bankruptcy after four features, having more control over the look of the film in post-production was a big plus. Remember, we have an infinite amount of time in post, and nine very short, must-go-right, what-you-see-is-what-you-get days in production. Except that July came, and the 4K production camera was not released. Then August, and nothing. The pocket camera had shipped, and we considered shooting on that, because we were a little more than a month away without a camera. We still needed to test it and learn it, and if nothing else, hold it in our hands. But when September 1st came and it hadn't shipped anywhere in the world, we knew it was over. Options were weighed. The Sony F3, the sturdy old 7D. What do we do? John and Kyle basically proposed the same idea right around the same time. The Canon 5D Mark III, a superior DSLR in the same line of cameras as the 7D, had a full-frame sensor and shot 1080p, and now you could load unsupported firmware on it called Magic Lantern RAW. Essentially, it was software that you can load with which to shoot RAW video. Canon won't support it, and you even run the risk of breaking or bricking your camera by installing it, but the internet was a flutter with tutorials and workflows and tests. 
With the 5D, for about $4,000 for a good kit, we could get everything we wanted in the Blackmagic camera, minus the 4K resolution. We'd have to shoot 1080. That seemed like a good compromise. This wasn't a J.J. Abrams movie we were shooting here anyway. A drunk dude playing music in 4K is all the same in 1080. Honestly, 4K is really only handy for large projections of the film. Kyle picked it up one afternoon, and the camera conundrum was cracked. And aside from Kyle Gage... Ultimately, we were lucky, because the Blackmagic production camera 4K has since been released and has been met with rather terrible reviews. On the other hand, the Canon 5D Mark III with Magic Lantern has proven itself nearly unbeatable at its price point. On having fun up there, we didn't really get the chance to play around with the external monitoring. The 5D Mark III supports uncompressed HDMI output, or some of the crazier features of the Magic Lantern firmware. It was almost like shooting on film old school. You don't get to see your shots until after they've been processed. As much as we hate on film, the workflow is acceptable when you're willing to sacrifice on-set convenience for quality. The only other challenge on the technical side of things was audio. Filmmakers learn quickly that bad audio can actually make your visuals look worse. Uneven or distant sound reveals that continuity editing is an illusion, breaking the cohesive experience of watching an edited film. The good news is, none of our films, by my standards, have bad audio. We've always maintained a standard. On Sexually Frank, we implemented the use of wireless lav mics and ran multiple tracks into a live mixer, making it far simpler to capture sound from various elements in the same scene. But it was all still mono. On this film, John purchased the H6 Zoom recorder with a stereo microphone. He built a nice rig of wireless and wired receivers on a tripod, allowing himself to be freed from wearing so many wires and devices on his person. He got a bit tangled on Sexually Frank from time to time. The idea was that we would record the scene's atmosphere and noise in stereo, as well as music or other non-dialogue elements, and mix that with mono-recorded dialogue. And aside from John Hunt. I remember early conversations in which Frankie challenged Kyle and me to find ways to expand our respective areas. I struggled with that in audio. I knew there were some technical issues I wanted to improve, such as fewer rogue mics in the shot and improving cable management, even with the wireless labs but I couldn't come up with any way to further the story with audio. I did push very hard on stereo, though. We had the capability in Sexually Frank, but almost none of the scenes were recorded in stereo because the mixer didn't have the channels. With the H6, we could now have two stereo channels always running and have four Sennheiser 100 series wireless labs, with one more added to our collection just before shooting began, also running. It may not do much for the art of the film, but it did ensure we had good, clean audio. I rounded out the secondary and tertiary cast by listing people I liked working with on previous films, including Vibes, mapped them to the roles I thought they could handle, lined them up in our schedule, and bam, I didn't have to audition new, scary people. We had a unique sort of role in the film, the character of Noah, who played a former friend and bandmate of Mark's who was signed by Sony and was now back in town after being fired. Noah lays down some truth about seeing the other side to Mark, and provides a prism we can look through as Mark navigates his anxieties. It's a large and important role, but only has one long scene and one short scene, so it was an awkward-sized part. My instinct was to cast someone I felt close to. First, I asked Doug Bergdorf to play the role, who never allows himself on camera in making of blogs, let alone to act, but to my surprise, he said yes. But quickly, we realized that our schedules wouldn't line up. Then I realized Ben Fisher was an obvious choice. He was a star in both Abo and Sexually Frank, and I thought he would pull it off brilliantly but our schedules missed one another very narrowly as he had a show in D.C. I was out of ideas when a small event popped up. I have an old acquaintance from high school that started producing YouTube content. Simple, straightforward stuff, but not terrible, and he had a surprising amount of support. 
He looked to me for some filmmaking advice and encouragement, and I always offered him some motivational words. But most of all, I told him to keep doing it because it's a blast, and for no other reason. Yeah, but I want to be an internet celebrity, like James Rolfe or Doug Walker. Mark my words, I'll get there. Well, how did those guys get there? James Rolfe made like 150 videos before he went viral with the Angry Video Game Nerd, and he did that just because he absolutely loves producing work. And one day, one of the many random things he made hit big. True. I guess everyone has to start somewhere. I hope you realize, dear reader, that this was not my point. My point was that aiming for a luscious career is a misguided strategy. Filmmaking and entertaining are not ways to make money, so you better be willing to do them for free. My point was missed by this young man and probably millions of others, which is really why we were making our Adjust Your Dreams movie to begin with. I thought the Noah scene could really benefit from this kind of story. For Noah to monologue and drive the point home, and I couldn't imagine anyone but me delivering it. I had absolutely no intention of acting in this film, initially, because my performance in Sexually Frank was scrutinized beyond my comfort level, complicated by the fact that I was playing a version of myself. But now, I was in love with the idea of the director of the film stepping on screen before the end of the first act to tell the audience the point of the film, and then leaving and seeing if we can prove it. And aside from Jeff Torelli. The themes of this film have proven more controversial than I ever imagined. I've been told by a number of people that this adjust your dream story, as Frankie puts it, is a cynical outlook. That in some ways, it's about dying inside or giving up or setting low expectations. I don't buy that. There is a platonic ideal some people have about art and making it as an artist. It usually involves fame and fortune. Or, for an only slightly more realistic version, demands that we never labor on something we don't love to clothe and feed ourselves. This is driven by the society we live in. One that, as Douglas Adams famously said, is largely concerned with the movements of small green pieces of paper. You want to make art. You also don't want to starve. You can achieve both of these things without linking the not-starving part to the making-art part. It is in no way a sign of giving up or killing your dreams. The vast, vast majority of us will never make a good living creating the kind of art we want to. That's not defeatist. That's factual. It's not saying you won't become rich off your art or even just make ends meet, but it's unlikely. This shouldn't deter you, because presumably you like making art. This should be your focus. How do I get better at it? How do I evolve my own style? How do I refine what I say and how I say it? If the art is truly the focus for you, these are the important parts. If making a living off of your art is the important part, you must then open a really large, unappealing can of other factors. What's selling these days? How can I change what I do based on that? How do I adapt what I do to make it more appealing? What do I know about marketing? What connections do I have? How much can I pay an agent? And on and on and on, none of which has anything to do really with how you create your art. Now let's take Frankie. Here's a guy clearly in love with movie making. He's worked a number of years in the same IT department and has risen up via promotion to the point where he has a decently comfortable life and vacation days. He's directed two full-length films in about three years, I believe, and those aren't the only full-lengths he has to his credit, just the most recent. He's had his movies screened internationally, and he's never had to worry about pleasing anyone but himself because he doesn't have to rely on his art to keep him in electricity and pizza. He's got IT skills for that. He invests the money he makes at his job into films the way some people put money into vacations or even elaborate hobbies. His steady stream of IT work means that there will be a next movie, no matter what. Having fun up there can do absolutely nothing as a commodity. And because he works a good job 40 hours a week, in a year or two there will still be another movie if he wants to make it. Spoiler, he does. The idea that a day job somehow means you've given up or are bad at what you do and can't cut it is silly. 
Your art doesn't have to feed you, and that doesn't make you less of an artist. I ran it by Jeff, who loved the monologue idea and was entirely on board with the moral of the James Rolfe story. He wrote a great monologue and gave my new casting a very reluctant thumbs up. Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying you don't look like you'd be in a band. It's just, I, don't take offense, but you look, like, well, you look like my type, not exactly Noah. I know, but let me try to make it work. The clock was ticking. We didn't have the bar locations pinned down or the road race location in which Mark sells nutrient bars as one of his lame jobs or the tea place Mark worked at, which would turn into a coffee place out of necessity. We were also missing a few small locations like a pharmacy, a liquor store and a supermarket. Ingrid very graciously offered to help me lock down the small stuff and made a valiant effort, but was ultimately ineffective in doing so. I was running into a new problem that I had not had on any previous film. There were far more independent filmmakers in the world, and many of these locations had had bad experiences with them. They were much faster to say no than I had previously experienced, or faster to communicate a paid rate. As a matter of principle, I almost never paid for locations in the past, but that was about to change some on this movie. There was a wonderful bar in Somerville down the street from Jeff's apartment called Radio, which hosted local bands almost every day of the week. Jeff spoke with Amy, the owner, who was kind enough to reply quickly to his email. We dropped by while doing some scouting, and she was a tad shorter with us than an email. I'm going to need a charger, right? It cost me a certain amount of money to open the bar early, she barked in an Irish accent. Reasonable. What would you need from us to cover it? What could you do? One fifty? Well, that would do it. I didn't feel good about that negotiation. There was no haggling at all. I felt like I just threw out a high number that she was more than happy with. I went back and forth on how necessary it would be to throw money away on a location like that. I asked her if there were more lights in the space. We were there at 4 p.m. with the sun shining, and the place was very dark. She said no. We could barely see one another's faces. So if I were to get the location, I would need a solid gaffer, a lighting guy, someone better than any of us, just so the viewers could see anything. Then I saw a large, beautiful painting of Rocky Balboa punching meat above the bar. Rocky has always been my favorite movie, and now that I was tackling a story about a lonely loser with a dream who was trying to gain success as he defined it and not how someone else defined it, I felt like I was making my Rocky. I couldn't erase the image of Mark sitting with a beer below that painting, even if it was just for me. Jeff, Kyle, and I debriefed outside in the drizzling rain. Jeff seemed pretty convinced we should keep looking. The stupid Rocky painting had me thinking the other way. Perhaps paying will give us true run of the place, to use their electricity for lighting, and better ensure a successful shoot that almost a third of the movie takes place in. Radio, we thought, could be the primary bar. There was another scene that required a second bar, and Jeff promised to come up with some ideas for that. I emailed Amy a few days later, agreeing to the rate. Amy, very kindly, replied by saying that the fee wasn't necessary, that she knows how hard it is to make and afford films, and that the location was on her. One down. Getting a second bar never actually happened. Even up to the first day of shooting, I tried nailing down TT the Bears, the Precinct, and other bars of that nature in Boston, Somerville, Alston. The owners, managers, and line people worked at weird times, deferred to one another, and were never able to give definitive yeses or nos. TT's was looking good, but it was clear that I would have to finalize it during the first shooting days, which was horrifying. Fortunately, that shoot was scheduled for later in the week. Other locations came a lot more easily. We wanted a bowling alley slash snack bar location, of which I will not name, and that will be explained, which was approved with a simple phone call to the establishment. In the script, Mark's workplace is Royal Tea Tea Shop, based on a tea shop Jeff once worked at. I had a very difficult time finding any location that would go for our movie. But just in the nick of time, I got flat black coffee in the financial district of Boston to agree to let us shoot for $500 for one day. 
For that rate, they agreed that we were renting the store and said that any and all drink orders were paid for so we could provide drinks and food to the cast and crew. $500 was very steep, but worth it. And aside from Kyle Gage. Get a day job. Shoot your movies on the weekends. Your day job may lead to a career, which might give you tons more money. Do you know what you can do with that extra money? Spend it on locations. Spend it on a nice camera. Spend it on a nice audio kit. Not to beat a dead horse, but that's what we mean by adjust your dreams. Because getting a day job isn't giving up on your dream to make movies for a living. Frankie started as a kid with no money and a low-end camera and he made a movie. But didn't make movies his career. Eventually, the day job got good enough to pay for cool things. Like shooting at flat black coffee. Getting a real coffee shop for a location adds so much more production value to a low-budget movie. Frankie could write a whole chapter on how to spend as little money as possible while maximizing perceived production value. Because ultimately, any dollar you spend on making your movie should equate to something the audience can see or feel in the final product. The perceived difference between our $5,000 budget movie and a $50,000 budget movie is extremely small to the average audience. The very beginning of the movie shows a drunk Mark at his nephew's birthday party, in which the nephew receives a guitar and Mark tears his nephew's dreams down by ranting about the downfalls of music playing. This was a tricky shoe, as it required a children's birthday party, which means a new Bedford-style backyard, a cake, lots of party decorations, and a whole bunch of kids and adults. Abo, Sexually Frank, and now this movie all begin with teens involving groups of children, which is a weird coincidence now that I think about it. So I was experienced in hurting non-union stage kids and their parents. You put out an ad, you give them a location and a time, you try to commit as many of them as you can, and a fraction of the ones that contact you actually show up. Jeff knew an old friend and musician named Mike Brunetto, who had just bought a house in New Bedford. His backyard was perfect, and he was unwaveringly cool about volunteering his home to be infested by child actors and filmmakers. Mark also has a brother character in the movie, and there's a scene where he's plucking at a mandolin. All of the brother scenes took place at that location, and Mike Brunetto not only played but owned a mandolin. If he could act even moderately well, he was our guy. He accepted. The road race was a little less simple. There was a road race taking place at Fort Tabor in New Bedford, which is a local and recognizable attraction. It was to take place on a Sunday morning, the last day of our shoot, which fit in well with all the other things we were trying to get done. I emailed the race officials with my name and a very polite request to shoot some fictional scenes against the backdrop of their road race. After six days, I didn't receive a response, so I poked them again. The next day, I received this. I'm afraid we're going to pass. I'm sorry. It was September 2nd. We were set to shoot in 26 days. I was under pressure. Politely, I offered to donate to the race, talk out whatever problems they might have, anything. Later that day, I received a call from a number I didn't recognize. It was the race official. Hi, yes, you wanted to shoot some kind of a movie at our race? Yeah, it's going to be really easy. We'll stay out of the way of the runners. Well, see, I googled your name, and all of your films are... Yes? You make, like, very graphic, very sexual films. We don't want to be involved in something like that. Oh, oh. Well, well I, I can assure you that none of my films are, like, smut or anything. You might have seen that I made a film called Sexually Frank, but that's about relationships and love and friendship. Hmm. I don't really see the issue, but my, my husband said no. Oh. Can I speak to him? I think I could convince him. See, that's what I said, that he should call you. But he told me to call you and ask for details. So can you send the script along so we can make sure there's no, like, sex or any kind of, like, weird violence or horror stuff? Sure. I sent along the pages for that one scene. Fortunately, having fun up there only has swearing in it and no hue monkeys. And the road race scene had next to no cursing in it. I cut whatever incidental language it did have and passed it along. 
A few exchanges later, and we had their commitment to let us shoot. And aside from Jeff Torelli. The above is a good example of being persistent but honest. Frankie may have removed an F-bomb or two from the script, but he was completely upfront about what was going to be filmed at the location. It's a bad idea to simply get your foot in the door and then bring in the pyrotechnics and models riding ponies that you didn't tell your location people about. Be honest. Tell them what you're going to be filming. If you don't, you could find yourself shut down 20 minutes into a shoot and have wasted time and resources. Something Jeff had brought up a few times was that he had a good friend who was an excellent stills photographer. Her name is Bonica, and she would fly from her home in Austin just to follow us around on our shoot for the nine days. She would stay with Jeff, drive from location to location with him, and give us amazing production stills and shots for possible posters. It sounded too good to be true, so of course I said yes, especially if I didn't have to do anything. Saying yes didn't cost me a dime, and it was the least important thing on my mind. Time was just about up. The weekend before the first day of the shoot was spent designing an Adala logo, which was the graphic for the fake nutrient bar. I ordered a large banner and a few t-shirts for Mark and his co-employee, whose role was going to be filled by some Red Cow veteran. I just didn't know if it would be Keith Sadik, Aaron St. Laurent, Mike Morris, or who. No one had committed at that stage. John Ryan and I had a long Skype session, going over all the essentials, probably far too late in the process. We agreed on what he was thinking for clothing, hat versus no hat, various character beats, etc. We went through each scene and just talked it out. We read the Noah scene and marveled about how soon this was all happening. In the months leading up to this, John was uncertain about how easy it would be to take time off of work. He was working for a video game publication, which was corporate and fairly demanding on his schedule. This was the first vacation he had taken in years. The new Grand Theft Auto game had just come out, GTA V, and John had to capture hours of gameplay for various videos and reviews. So he would have to do that at my house between shoots. The night before the first day, I came home to Nina sitting in a pile of prop totes and bags, labeled by date and character. There was a lot of alcohol in our house, which was unusual. The Adala shirts and banner waited in sealed boxes, and I got a big charge out of opening them. There was no such thing as preparing anymore. The call sheets were posted. We had as many actors, extras, and locations committed as possible. From this point on, the challenge would be making a great movie and trying our best to prepare for the next day on each day of the shoot. 